You are listening to Pastor Dennis Helton of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please join us as we study the scriptures one verse at a time, finding therein the power of God and the wisdom which leads to salvation. And without further ado, here's Pastor Dennis Helton. What is the will of God? That would be the question that all Christians would want. What is the will of God for my life? And, uh, of course, there are a lot of wills of God that he has for us. We know that, first of all, he wants us to be saved, doesn't he? That was his will. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So if he wills for us to be saved, then he wills for us to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be made holy, to be set apart to him, to be set apart from sin and Satan and the world. And... Uh, our own flesh for that matter. The will of God, it's for us to be holy. And so you think of God and you think of really the holiness of God, how holy He is, perfect in everything, so set apart. But uh, that is the character of God and He wants us to have that same kind of nature. And when we are holy, we please God and we actually bring Him pleasure when we are holy. Uh, Ephesians 1.4 says um, something I think that's rather dramatic. As he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why did he choose us? That we would be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless. That's why he chose us. That's what he wants us to be is holy in in Colossians chapter one twenty two, talking about Christ reconciled them to present you holy in His sight, without blemish, and free from accusation, without blame, holy. And we realize that God gives us the Holy Spirit so that we would be holy, being made holy. Um, he makes us like himself. That's what he's doing, this work that was in the prayer just moments ago. This work that he's doing in us is actually making us set apart from the world, from sin, set apart to him. He's doing that work. Amazing, isn't it? He makes us like himself, like the person of Christ, to be holy. You'd never guess that's where this uh, this is heading this morning as far as our text is concerned. We are proceeding to the very last chapter of 2 Corinthians. And it's, uh, it's very fitting because last week uh, we dealt with chapter 12. We finished there. Paul was addressing the Corinthians' sin. He gave lists of sin, uh, two different lists there. And he was afraid what was going or that was taking place at the time there in Corinth. What he was going to see, he was afraid of it. He wasn't for sure, but he thought it was going that way. And so he wanted repentance. He wanted them to repent before he came. He didn't want to find them in their sins. 
that they had uh, once done when he arrived there. Um, we think that, uh, of course, a mark of a Christian is that they have peace, they have peace with God. Uh, but as far as the world is concerned, sometimes the peace is not there, is it? And Paul would want peace, but it's not peace at any cost uh, because there is a cost. There's a handling difficulties and problems that were in the Christian assembly there. Uh, of course, the first letter uh, to the Corinthians is obvious what was going on there. So many different kinds of sins happening. And he's even mentioned it here in Second Corinthians. And so he knows he's going to have to come in if they haven't repented with a knife, like a surgeon. He's going to have to uh, do something that the medicine, the liquid medicine, could not do. And so now he says that when he comes, he will have to discipline them. He's concerned about them, their sanctification, their holiness. That's what he's concerned about. He's concerned about the purity of the church. And evidently, there were reasons why he thought that uh, there were problems. The Lord of the church, Christ, is concerned about the purity of the church, isn't he? He's the head of the church. He's concerned about that. Sin is the issue to the Lord of the church. It should be the issue for us, right? Sin is a major issue that we are always having to deal with. The church must have a deep interest in solving that and maintaining purity. That's what we want to do, to maintain the purity. God gives that to us, but we have to keep maintaining that. It's a battle. It's a war, isn't it? And, you know, we are accountable, first of all, to the Lord for our actions, uh, whether they be in Christ or whether they be in the flesh. We are accountable to ourselves. That's really where uh, discipline starts. It, we know it, it's by the power of Christ, uh, Christ who's in us, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do things on our own. But we're accountable to Him. We're accountable to ourselves. We're accountable to each other. The church is to, to hold each other accountable, to help each other keep from sin. We don't, we don't want to sin, and we want to keep from that sin. But it's tough in our church today, in our culture today. We don't want to get into others' business, and we have to be careful about getting into every little detail. Of course, we don't do that. It would just be... Uh, it would be terrible. It would be all the time, you know, if we were after every little detail. But we're talking about sins that uh, impact the church in a real negative way. Um, but we are to be involved with, with others. Al Mohler said this. Al Mohler is a president of Southern Seminary. And uh, I'll quote. says, Individuals now claim an enormous zone of personal privacy and moral autonomy. The congregation redefined as a mere voluntary association has no rights to intrude into this space, they say. Many congregations have forfeited any responsibility to confront even the most public sins of their members. It goes on to say, congregations are consumed with pragmatic methods of church growth. Moeller calls that congregational engineering going through all the different ways of how we can make the church grow outside of uh, the Word of God. Most churches just ignore the issues of sin because they don't want to deal with it. And uh, 
Paul here was concerned with the past sins, the culture they had come from. He knows their culture. They were pagans. They, they didn't come up through a Jewish society. Knowing some kind of righteousness, even though it was, that was a false righteousness in, in Israel, but the pagans had so many idols that they worshipped and the practices, the immorality that happened. And, and so Paul is so concerned with that and so each one of them were going to be held accountable to how they lived in the church. They needed help. Past sins were always there at the, at the door, you know, knocking. And so it was heartbreaking to Paul when he heard such things happening there in Corinth. He was consumed that these new believers, pretty well, um, he was consumed with the fact that he knew they were doctrinally sound he had taught them well. They were doctrinally sound, but also they needed to be morally upright. They knew a lot of things, but there was short, a short in practice. And so the Word of God is what should consume us and is what is going to make us holy with the Holy Spirit. And so they should go back to that doctrine. What you believe, what your doctrine is, is how you're going to live. What you believe is how you're going to live. That always will show up. The Word of God and then living it. So our concern in the church is not to make unbelievers happy, but to make believers get to a place of holiness. That's really what the church is about. Um, having concerns like repentance, having concerns like self-discipline, church discipline, having concerns with authority of uh, the very Word of God, authenticity in our lives, obedience in our lives, spiritual maturity. That's the kind of things the, the church should be concerned with. That's what uh, Paul is talking about. He so often uses the word walk. We uh, sing a song called Walk by Faith, right? We live by faith. Paul so often said that. So we should desire more and more holiness. Uh, it's an ever ongoing battle, a marathon. Uh, he gets us to a level, he takes us up to another level, to another level, to another level, until Christ comes back and we be like him then ultimately. We, we want to be sensitive to sin, not in a legalistic way, but in a way that pleases the Lord. So what can help us advance to another level of sanctification? It's progressive sanctification. That's what we do, not in a legalistic way, but by the way of pleasing God. How can we do that? Well, that's what our text uh, should help us with here today, should have a, a great deal of help to us. Uh, we are actually closing out. We won't be finishing this chapter in this book today, but uh, like I say, we're closing out for however long it takes for this, this chapter. And I hope it's been rewarding in a lot of ways if you haven't studied Second Corinthians 13 or done it for a long time. Uh, we're going to be doing the first four verses and uh, just for a little bit of uh, opportunity to stretch and honor God's Word, why don't we stand? Let's pick up our Bibles and let's read this Holy Word. as it has been inspired by the Holy Spirit 
verse 1, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your will. Your will is for us to be holy. May we be able to please you in the life that you're setting apart, that we be obedient. Help us to be more and more like that. We have not arrived yet. We know that, Lord. But thank you for your powerful work in us. Help us to work it out. Help us with this text to be able to understand it and apply it today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And you can be seated. And we uh, are turning right here to our chapter 13 and verse 1. Verse 2, it's dealing with discipline. Um, first two verses of Second Corinthians 13. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And of course, he uh, does not really want to discipline them. It's the third time. And really the most important reason, as we talk about holiness, really the, the most important reason that we should be holy is found in the very command of God. He commands us to be holy. Be holy, for I am holy. And he says it a lot. Matter of fact, I got a whole bunch of verses in, in the law, in the Old Testament about that. It's kind of interesting to see how many times it is mentioned. Uh, he doesn't want them to forget that. So the uh, one of my quotes there would be right out of Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 44, 45, and that's an obvious one. Uh, you're probably very familiar with it. Just kind of show ourselves that he mentions it so often. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Set yourself apart. Sanctify yourselves. Therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. That's command, right? There are no options to this. You be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make for yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things and the swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. A command. It makes fact. He is holy. So he says, I want your character to be like my character. So that is obvious. Found in the law right there in Leviticus. Uh, chapter 19, if you want to just turn over a few pages, and again, the Lord will say that. In the same book, same book that's written by Moses, in uh, chapter 19 and in verse 2, says, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, that's really the same theme, isn't it? And we look at all these verses and say, why do we have to go to all these verses? Well, I think it's kind of interesting that he would keep mentioning it to them, because evidently it didn't stick to them. <laughs> and so that's why he keeps repeating things sometimes. In chapter 20, verse 7, he says this, you shall consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. Have you heard this before? For I 
am the Lord your God. Keep statutes, practice there, them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I, I actually make you holy. I sanctify you. Chapter 20, um, I think it's verse 26. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. That's a great work of God, setting them apart and doing that. So he says, now, here's who I am. Here's what I instill in you. Here's what you can do. He says, now what? Do it, right? Uh, Then we move on to uh, Exodus, uh, a book back from us there, one in Exodus 22, verse 31. This is still the law, right? He says, you shall be holy men to me therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field you shall throw it to the dogs there he's just giving uh, various uh, different kind of that's whether it be property rights through here dealing with animals and such all the way through here he says you don't be like the pagans you be set apart you know, you be holy in numbers chapter 15 verse 40 this is all in, in the law Uh, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. You do the commandments. You be holy. Right? You be holy. God is holy. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 is a quote. God is holy, be ye holy, for I am holy. The command is there. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it's in the epistle that we are presently in. Therefore, having these promises, therefore, because of this, because of the doctrine, because of the promises, now do this, right? Because of what he instills in us, he calls him beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, maturing in holiness, maturing in Christ, fearing God. He says, so he says, cleanse ourselves. He gives us the power to cleanse ourselves. He already set us apart at salvation, so that's a past tense, but the practical sense is what we do in his power. So we've seen a lot of passages there, and because he's holy and he, he tells us to be obedient, do the commands. Um, that's the most important reason that we'd be holy. It's a command of God. It is because he says so. Because it's the best that we can be. He always has our best interest, doesn't he? Always, always. So uh, the motivation there is it's God's command. And then we see that God is the one who does discipline. Every one of us have been disciplined by the Lord. We're probably disciplined all day long by Him. Sometimes we don't know it, but... uh, And really, discipline ultimately means to train. He's training us. Have you ever had a pet that you trained, you know, to be... uh, Like, for instance, if you have a house pet, to be trained not to use the bathroom anywhere in the house at any time, right? You train a dog to go outside. You train a dog to... To, to sit or whatever, all those different things. And that can be a challenge, can't it? Um, but he disciplines us so we can actually share 
in His holiness. He says, be holy for I am holy. He wants us to be like Him, like Christ. Uh, we share. We share in His holiness. And you see in Hebrews that in chapter 12, I believe that we see a, a comparison to parents and children. In verse 5, it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's a good thing. It's a mark of a Christian to be what? To be disciplined, to be trained by him. Uh, we have to be, and we will be. The Lord does that, that work. It's a good thing because we don't have it all together. We're not perfect, are we? So he is maturing us. We look in uh, Job chapter 5, verse 17. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. That's really fascinating because we should count it blessed we should be counted as being happy, blessed, because God reproves us, because He disciplines. It's coming from the Almighty. If He doesn't do it, it means we're not His children. He does care for His children, doesn't He? We don't think it's always the best, what He does, but aren't we glad that ultimately we know that He always does best? Huh. Kind of reminds me of that old show back in the 60s father knows best our father in heaven knows best doesn't he psalm chapter 94 verse 12 blessed is the man happy is the man whom you chasten O lord and whom you teach out of your law he's teaching us his word He's correcting us. He's training us. He's disciplining us. It's what the Word of God does. We should desire that we be taught by Him, chastened by Him sometimes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. So this is what God does to make us holy, huh? But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. If you're a Christian, you're not going to be judged because of your works. But He does judge us now. He judges the church. He cleanses us. He purifies us. He chastens us. He trains us. Aren't you glad the Lord does that rather than at the end where he would judge you? Not by the grace of Christ, but because of your works. 
because of your disobedience, because you're not a Christian, right? We want to be trained by him. So that is the Lord who disciplines us just from many, many verses, isn't it? He does it. And then sometimes he does it by the church. God disciplines his children. He gives a responsibility to the church even. And we know that um, Paul expected the churches to practice discipline. And you think of, um, since we're in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we see that there was immorality in the church. It was defiling the church and they hadn't taken care of it. We know that Paul was very upset over that with what was going on. And he says in verse 3, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, as he wrote that first letter, he wasn't there with him, but he writes it to him in this letter, I have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, whom you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. I'm not necessarily talking about killing him, although in Acts chapter 5, that was also practiced too with Ananias and Sapphira. But here it says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, for salvation, he was doing some things that looked like an unbeliever. Matter of fact, even worse than unbelievers there. Even unbelievers would have condemned this immorality that had happened. Um, anyway, we see there turning one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. You know, not the spiritual matter, but. Anyway, uh, if you drop down into verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I do not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for you would have to go out of the world. There he's saying, you know, we can't, we can't go out and discipline the unbelievers, can we? We are to give them the gospel and tell them the good news. Uh, but once they are believers, then... God's word is to discipline them, that they are no longer to act like the pagans and the idolaters. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, one that professes to be a Christian, if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. So there he, he's saying that such sin, there are such sins where people have to be distanced from them, not to associate with one that practices such a sin that brings a, a mark upon on the church, and where even the unbelievers would say, oh yeah, hey, how about there, that Joe there, here he's a member of your church, yeah, didn't he, what's the deal there, don't you know what he's, my goodness, I can't believe you guys, you know, not to make a mark like that. So, Paul, in this whole thought of discipline, and he's been kind of bringing this all the way through, all the way through chapter 12 and now 13 of maintaining discipline. Uh, he wants 
repentance, and it's actually an act of love to bring one to a point of repentance. If they're not repenting, and then they repent, and then to restore them to fellowship. That's the whole goal of it all. Uh, and it's almost like saying, hey, we love you too much not to say anything about this sin that is destroying you and yourself, whether it be some kind of uh, drug or alcohol or immoral sin, something that's making a mark on on the rest of the church. And so that is to be taken care of. So that's the reason that Paul gives a fair warning. He says, this is the third time that I come to you. Of course, that would be easy to count here. He first had come to the Corinthians, and many of them were saved, weren't they? The church was started. He taught them the word of God for like 18 months. Uh, He left, and he heard some reports, and there was the immorality going on there. The church didn't do anything about it. He visits them a second time as a painful visit, he called it. In the meantime, he had written letters, letters that, are not inspired that are not in our Bible, but yet at the same time, it was this kind of thing that was going on. And then we get Second Corinthians, and this is where we have finally arrived. And you can see why he is so concerned about the false teachers that had come in. So it all comes to culmination. All of these verses make sense as they move from one verse to another verse, from one chapter to another chapter. It just correlates, doesn't it? So you just can't take one chapter or one verse and just take it out of context to make it say something. You've got to have this put together. And so that's why we've been on it uh, and for quite quite some time. Um, so we go back to our Second Corinthians. And uh, I don't know, I, I think I finished my introduction quite some long time ago. And we are in chapter 13. I was just on the first part of the verse here just talking about what this... Uh, Holiness is about and discipline. And he says, uh, matter of fact, if you go on down, and I'll come back to this this quote, every fact is to be confirmed by testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present second time, though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare any of you. So it's it's the third time. Every fact, we'll get to that in a moment. Um the idea here is he's not going to spare anyone. Wow, Paul. Gracious as you are, Paul, can you say this as a Christian? Sounds like he's mad. Well, there was severe sin that had gone on there, and there was no repentance up to that time. He's still waiting to get word, and he actually did get word that things were good. But at this time, as he writes it, this is how he's feeling and how he puts forth this. Will not spare anyone. That's a really strong Greek uh, phrase there. It's a really strong English phrase, isn't it? Um, It actually carries the idea of having mercy on an enemy. To spare one is to have mercy on the enemy. Got a chance to just blow their head off and you don't do it. The text here is saying that Paul declares that he would not spare them. They are not enemies. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. But he wouldn't spare them. If there's no repentance this time, remember, he has written letters. He has been there. 
some of this has just kept on going. So that's why he confronts this. He didn't hesitate to confront this sin. And, of course, he did the same thing to the Galatians. If you remember Galatians 1, he didn't waste any time. I mean, he hit it right off the bat. And if you get to verse 6, he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now, he just goes to extreme here. And we know there's no different God. There's only one gospel. But there's a false gospel going on, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Now that's rather heavy, isn't it? As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. That's definitely a discipline there, isn't it? And that was to the Galatians. So again, this kind of thing is being done there. So he does not hesitate to, with the Galatians. A, a guy by the name of Carl Laney wrote a book called The Guide to Church Discipline. And he writes this. He said, The church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowed to fester as an infection weakens the body by destroying its defense mechanism. So the church has been weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle for social, moral, and spiritual change. We can understand that, can't we? This illness is due, at least in part, to a neglected church discipline. It's from Carl Laney, Guide to Church Discipline. Paul was really one who loved the church. And you see Paul's heart in all the epistles, some of them even more so than ever. You see right inside Paul, you know he loved them. And he's already said that to the Corinthians how many times, you know, right in this letter here. Uh, he has biblical love, doesn't he? True biblical love. And he has true biblical discipline. He's able to do both. You mean you can love somebody and at the same time have words to them that sometimes seem severe? That's an expression of love. Paul hated the sin and he saw that it infected them. It weakened them. It can destroy. It can be unrepentant sin. And it robs the believers of joy in Christ when they're sinning. Robs them of, of pleasure in Christ. So, this is why he hates the sin so much. There's a method. And it's, it's the, the discipline that, that God has given us. Discipline is not a witch hunt. It's not out to get everybody on everything that we hear or see. Sometimes we don't even know. We think something and we don't really even know that. We have to be really careful. And that's, we have to be careful about false allegations. You can see how crazy and lunatic it could be begotten to but God is a God of justice God is a God who is fair in his own disciplining and that's the way it's to be carried out according to the law of God so as we see here in 2nd Corinthians he says every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses uh, the quote there is out of Deuteronomy 19.15. If you have a study Bible or some other Bibles, they might have uh, the quote there out of Deuteronomy in great big capital letters. 
some way to note to you this is <laughs> Paul quoting and often you'll see that all the way through his epistles he often is quoting scripture almost in any kind of passage where you're at he'll quote from somewhere and he does this that they all knew about the, the Jews knew this uh, obviously one witness is not enough to convict a person is it one you know one just can't go in there make a claim and boom you know start some kind of discipline uh, there are many verses if you wanted to turn to Deuteronomy 19.15 we can look at that it's basically saying the, the same thing right out of the law and he says uh, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed now that's a pretty good law and just one witness could be what one thinks or what he favors or waits on his own side. That's in the law. Jesus quoted it in that or took that into effect. John 18, Jesus said, Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. So Jesus affirms that. You find it in Timothy 5.19. You never bring an accusation against an elder except before two or three witnesses. And, uh, of course, uh, we see Jesus say that in Matthew 18. And, of course, uh, that whole Matthew 18 in that section, 15, 16 and on, he's dealing with church discipline. And so Paul tells them that it's to be done according to the book, according to the law, according to the right way, not just how someone wants to do. It's, it's a just, it's a, it's a fair way. And so he's going to require proper witnesses to carry out the discipline and uh, of course there were sins there in carrying out a discipline process one would be a factious man uh, one who would be tearing uh, the the fellowship up in Titus chapter 3 verse 10 would be this thought here reject a factious man after a first and second warning there's the first second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning being self-condemned so uh, right there uh, to pastor uh, uh, Titus he gives the rule in, in 1 Corinthians 5 it was dealing with a sexual kind of sin so it's, it's major sins that extend out over and beyond uh, maybe some kind of a privately held sin that um, may not be as uh, damaging uh, in the sense. And matter of fact, uh, you know, it's, it starts with ourselves, doesn't it? It's called self-discipline. And that's really, you know, it, it's the Lord, it, it's then ourselves, then it is, it brings in the, the church, others there. And that's kind of the, the thought that Paul is saying here in 13. And, of course, he's, he's quoting the Scripture. Of course, uh, some say it's, he's been there twice, and this is the third time coming, so that would be a third witness. But I think ultimately it's still bringing in others in that. So that's idea on point one, uh, discipline. Verses 3 and 4 then deal with the authority of the truth. And we really are under the authority of, of God's Word, aren't we? We're under His authority, the authority of the truth. We're not under authority of, a, of a, 
of a pastor, of a priest, of a pope. Uh, it's only under the authority of this word of God. And, of course, when it was written and then, of course, taught and preached, it's the, the authority that uh, God gives. And so that's what he establishes here in verses 3 and 4 as he speaks, they have been seeking proof that Christ was speaking in him. They're not convinced that uh, Christ was speaking. So he says in verse 3, Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. So we're going to verse 3. They were saying, we want some proof that you're really of Christ. How do we know? Maybe this is just your opinion that you've been giving us. How do we know? Maybe this is just your thoughts, your ideas. How do we know this is the Word of God? How do we know this? Give us some proof, Paul. Well, he did. <laughs> they were sticking out as about as big as possibly could be. He already said in the previous chapter, in chapter 12, verse 12, the signs of a true apostle are signs, wonders, and miracles. This is what marks one off. How do we know you're an apostle and you're speaking God's word? How do we know that this is true revelation straight from God? How do we know that? How can we measure that? And he says the signs of a true apostle. You know the signs. You know the wonders. You know the miracles that were seen in Corinth. You know about that, don't you? You saw them, didn't you? So the... And, and that was during the day and they needed apostles to give this word of God. That's the foundation. So that was one. They had evidence from the signs, didn't they? They had evidences from salvation, their own salvation. Who brought them the saving truth? The word of God, the gospel to them. It was him. They, you want proof? Folks, think back, right? That's, that's what Paul is saying. Oh, you're waiting for some kind of proof. By the, word, the, word, uh, by the way, the word for proof is dokime, dokimos, test, right? That proves. That, that's the idea. It's, it's to give a test to, to show proof what is genuine. And so that's what they were saying. And, uh, of course, he, he did that. You know, in Ephesus, they, they had to do that. They had to check, because there were people going around saying they were apostles. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, this is the instructions or the uh, a word, a message to the seven churches. In verse 2, he says, I know your deeds, Christ says. And this is to the church at Ephesus, okay? Verse 1 says, I know your deeds and your toil, your perseverance, it's, it's great, it's good, that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test, there's our word right there, those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. And you found them to be false. So they were a very biblically trained church, weren't they? Of course, Paul came in and taught them, gave them the gospel. My, they had Apollos teach them. They had others continue. John, the apostle John later came in and was their pastor. My, you just go on, on through the early 
church history very early, and you'll see the church fathers came out of there too. You go, wow. I mean, they were taught. They had doctrine. They did a lot of the right things, and when they were an apostle, they came up, or somebody said they were an apostle, they would test them, find out they were really not apostles. And so they did those kind of things. The Corinthians weren't doing too good in that area about false teachers, false apostles. They should have seen and remembered. They did remember after Paul reminds them what he had done. Christ spoke through him. That's the the idea. We proclaimed the word to you. How do we know somebody is speaking the right thing? Well, they proclaim the truth out of the word. They take other scripture and compare those scriptures with that scripture. And you'd be like the Bereans to test and examine everything that is taught, right? And so if it jives with other passages and it, it jives with that text, that's how we test. That's how we test and check things out. Christ speaks in you. There's only one way I know that Christ is speaking through a person. You say, well, how's that? The way I know is that he speaks the word of God. He does it in a way where that it is done in a, in a way that is understood, in a way that people can look it up and, and check it out, the word of Christ. Um, this is the word of God. They were saved. They were sanctified. God is mighty in the Corinthians. After all this, you say, it sure doesn't seem like it, does it? He's still doing his work in them despite what they are doing. He says, since you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, the word of God through him He's not weak towards you. You know that you are saved by Him. You're sanctified by Him. You know that you have been experiencing His work. Do you want more proof of how Christ and how mighty He is working in you? Do you want more proof? Well, He says, okay, then I'll give it to you. I'll give you proof whenever I come and there are unrepentant Christians there and I'm going to give the same authority with the word of Christ. You want more proof? Then I'm going to come in with authority. I'm going to come in blasting with both barrels. He doesn't want to do that. I don't think they want that to happen. Beloved, always there is power when believers act in line with the truth of God's word. So, a sure mark of person of God so that they handle the word of God accurately a teacher preacher and all of us for that matter 2nd Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 we're required to do this with the word of God be diligent to present yourself approved to be to, to pass the test to show that it's genuine. To be approved, uh, yourself approved to God as a workman 
What does a workman believe? Somebody who is diligent, who studies, who reads, who checks things out, who does not need to be ashamed, don't feel comfortable with using the Word of God, that would be ashamed, right? I don't, I don't have any verses I don't know, right? Accurately handling the Word of Truth. Accurately handling. That's not just talking to Timothy or Titus or just the early church there, but it's to all of us, isn't it? That we are to be workmen, to accurately handle God's Word. And so that is the sure mark of one who is genuine. I think Paul passed the test, don't you think? So there's, a, there's an affirmation there. Not weak towards you, but mighty in you. And remember, he said this many times, that they considered him weak. Paul was one who could write strong letters, but when he was in person, he was weak. Um, he was considered to be one who was not a good speaker. He wasn't impressive. He didn't use the words that would have impressed people that they don't even know what he means. You know, they talk over their head and such. Uh, he lacked charm, they said. Uh, he lacked, you know, the ability to, to catch people by his personal appearance and his oratory. His great abilities he didn't have, they said. He's weak, right, when he's in person. That's, that's what he used. And you know what? He went along with that. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, he talked about afflictions. That's rather weak, isn't it? As he shows his afflictions in chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about his tears. It's painful. It's a painful visit that he made with them. And that's pretty weak, isn't it? And you, you know what I mean by weak here, right? He says, okay, you talk about weak. In chapter 6, verse 4 through 10, we get his weakness. In chapter 11, 23 through 33, um, you're very familiar with that. Uh, in Second Corinthians, and where he talks about the imprisonments and beaten without number, and the the thirty nine lashes, the rods, the shipwrecks, and frequent journeys, and the robbers, and on and on and on. He says, "You want me to brag? I'm going to brag. Check this out. Here's what a minister, uh, an apostle, uh, went through for you. You know, I'm, I'm not up in royalty. I'm not wearing the crown. You know." This is, you know, he got low, didn't he? That's what we all do. An apostle of all things gets really low because Christ is low. We are to humble ourselves. Why do we think so highly of ourselves? Because that's natural. We're in a fight, a battle against that. Why is it all about ourselves? We're to die to self. But we have to, you know, we have to say this all the time, don't we? There is not a person in here and there's not a person in the whole body of Christ today or ever has been who has gotten it all together because they have it in, within themselves to lift themselves up. And so the battle always is to bring ourselves back down. It's not about me. It's not about what I've even done. That doesn't even matter. What? It really doesn't. 
What matters is where you're at right now in your walk with the Lord. That's what matters. Where you're at now. It doesn't matter if you've done some great things in the Lord. That was then. And we don't have to go around telling people that. We don't have to tell people who we are and what we have done. But what we do... Now, Paul has to do this to... You can see that they're running down his apostleship. They're running down the very word that he had even taught. And so there he, he starts with his bragging in his lowliness. And then in chapter 12, 7 through 10, after he says, I know a man, he doesn't even say himself here, but it's himself, who was caught up to the third heaven. And he had every human right to be very proud about that fact. But immediately he goes down and he says, there was given to me a thorn in my side to buffet me. This is, this is what I have to deal with, Paul says. This is what everybody has to do. Okay, there's nothing there he, he even brags about because he can't even tell them about it because they wouldn't understand what he would say because it's heavenly language. It's the heavenly vision that he saw and he can't relate that to this earth. God just kept him humble. And he keeps us all humble. Weak, if we may be. When you're weak, he is strong. Keep trying to be weak. Within any second now, we'll probably start rising up. <laughs> Just be weak. It's a discipline, isn't it? Paul was, Paul was weak means to keep yourself out of the picture. He didn't have the charm, but he sure brought the gospel, didn't he? He cared for them. He wanted them to grow in Christ. Keep yourself out of the picture. Just become a channel through whom the very power of God flows through. A channel. The power of God's Spirit flows through us. Paul was weak. Jesus was weak. Whoa, wait a minute. Now you're going a little too far here. Philippians 2, verse 7. He humbled himself to the point of death. Speaks of crucifixion. Now, granted, he could have got himself off the cross. Thank the Lord he didn't, right? But he looked very weak. Of course, that's where the good news starts as he dies for our sins there his human life the way that he came to this earth was in a weak manner born in a manger born in Bethlehem wasn't a king a king's son actually he is he was but here on earth in his humanness he was susceptible to pain and death and crucifixion is the ultimate supreme evidence of that weakness and the power of God then goes with that because the resurrection proves the power of God and we know that he was raised from the dead many texts with that we could go on and on and on with that in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 all a part of the gospel, who was declared the Son of God with power 
by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Power. Resurrection from the dead. So Christ appeared weak. Whenever he was at his weakest, that's where he was strong. The very power of God. So there's a weakness and strength in Christ. It sounds like opposites, doesn't it? Paul experienced weakness constantly, but the strength was seen in Christ. Paul ministered in weakness, didn't he? Very much. And yet in chapter 12, verse 9, that oh, that key verse, I'll tell you, if, if you don't get any other verses out of the Second Corinthians, you know this one has to stick. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness, lowliness, humility. Wow. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. We used to do a song called that. It was right out of that, those two verses. We'll have to dig that one back up, right? Ah, weakness and strength in Christ. Isn't that amazing? It just doesn't seem like it goes together. Is that a worldly way to do it? No. That's the way the world practices it. To get to some powerful position, you don't ever be weak. You can't be seen weak. You can't have weakness at any time. Of course, the weakness really is in Christ because strength is in Christ. The power of the resurrection is applied to us. We were crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's our power. So we say about self-discipline and church discipline, it's only done in the very power of Christ in the way that he does. It's in the power of him. Power directed toward the Corinthians. The power of God that raised Paul with Christ and gave him eternal life would be directed toward the Corinthians whenever he went and visited them in Corinth. He would come in the power and the authority in Christ. Whoa. <laughs> it's the authority of the Word of God that he's coming in. It's no other explanation for my life than it's the power of God anyway, right? Paul's saying. Philip Hughes has a really interesting paragraph on this. He says this, The apostle discerns an analogy between the smaller, localized setting of his relations with the Corinthian church and the cosmic drama in which his master, Christ, is the chief actor. The weakness of the cross at Christ's first advent is to be followed by the manifested power of his majestic authority as King of Kings and Lord of Lords at his second advent when he will appear as the judge of the whole world. The first time Christ came, he came in weakness. The next time he comes, he will come in power and all glory and in majesty. And with judgment on the unbelievers, Paul was going to be coming to Corinth armed with the irresistible power of the glorious risen Christ when he came. So he relates all of that 
as he says in 4, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives, Christ does, because of the power of God. So we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed in you, as he says to the Corinthians. Is the power of God directed in you? Has the word of God spoken to us this morning? Well, church needs authority. The word of God is our authority. Only authority, scripture. We're commanded to bring it clearly. We're commanded to obey it. We will be blessed. We will be honoring God, pleasing God. And the need of the church is that there be repentance as it needed to be in Corinth, that there would be discipline from the Lord, from ourselves individually. Submit to the authority of God's word. That is how we are made holy. And like I say, it starts with really looking at yourself in your relationship with Christ and living for his honor, living to please him. And that sets us off into part two, which is going to be found on Tuesday as we will jump into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and uh, the aspect of Paul doing this same kind of thing with the Thessalonians as he wants them, as they already have a love and the actions and obedience he says, I want you to be even more obedient. I want you to love even more. And then if they get to that level, then he says, now I want you to do it more. And then it continues on. I want you to do it more. Church, God's power is already working in you. It's been done. It's being done. But let's do it more, right? And then after that, let's keep doing it more. We haven't reached the roof, have we? Right? We want to continue to keep raising this roof by the power of God. Look at the power that He has given us to keep changing our own lives. I don't really have to look at anybody else. I really have to just look at me. And then next week in chapter 13, verse 5, it will say, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Do you see where all that leads to? Anyway, thank you guys for being such an attentive church to God's word and letting his word be our judge, our authority. I'm just a messenger. I'm just a messenger. It's not my authority, but it is the authority of the word of God, isn't it? And it comes out of this word, this this, this pulpit that's standing for who he is. Um, let's... Have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this morning to come to worship you, to honor you, to please you. Thank you for saving us. That's your will. Thank you for sanctifying us. That is your will. We desire so much to please you. We adore you, Lord. May we take this and take it seriously. For there's always room for growth, always continually. Help us to grow. Help us to work out our salvation. Thank you, dear Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.